Due to the nature of this podcast, this podcast provides a forum for open expression of viewpoints held by industry participants. The opinions expressed and facts communicated by participants are neither endorsed nor verified. This podcast is brought to you in part by SureWinder, the industry-leading tool for winding residential and commercial springs with a cordless drill. Your business depends upon having the best technicians. Ensure their shoulder health with SureWinder tools. See us at SureWinder.com. Hey there, everybody. My name is Hannah. Welcome to another episode of Torch and Talk, the podcast where we talk about the garage door industry and how you can grow your garage door business. You ready to take Hey guys, just want to welcome Tom Wadsworth uh, to the podcast, and uh, I'd like to have Tom do a small introduction of himself, because I don't think anybody can do it as well as he can. He's done so much for our industry, and I'd like him to share a little bit about how he got into the garage door industry. Tom? Yeah, good morning, Ryan. Uh, this is... Uh um, I basically got into the business because it was a family thing. Uh, my dad started uh, in the garage door business in 1948. Uh, he had just got out of the Navy, and Rainer hired him at their manufacturing plant in Dixon, Illinois, to be uh, a draftsman in their engineering department. <clears throat> And so when I was growing up through the 50s and 60s, uh, we would go in and uh, to my dad's place of business and run through the factory and such. In the college, when I was working summers, I worked at the factory in Rainer, uh, bundling doors or doing a variety of different tasks uh, just to keep the operations going. Uh, but then I... I uh, <clears throat> I was in the process of uh, going to seminary. Also, at the same time, I ended up in the ministry for a, a number of years. But by 1989, I had left the ministry and got back involved in the garage door business. Rainer hired me as their communications manager. I was there 10 years uh, until 1999, at which point I, uh, I left Rainer, went into business for myself, and uh, was uh, quickly hired as the editor of the uh, Door and Access Systems magazine, the magazine produced by DASMA. And I served that role for 20 years and just uh, retiring as editor in January of this year, but I continue on as their uh, senior correspondent, still writing on a variety of topics. That's awesome. One thing that stood out to me when I was researching you was the... Um the 45 years married. Yeah. That's crazy. It is. Good job, it's man. Nuts. Yeah. That's rare for right. the door industry. Yeah, probably so. Uh, but, uh, yeah, my, my, uh, my wife's been a, a great companion uh, through the whole thing. And today we're uh, closer than we ever have been. Uh, so it's uh, a, real, a real support. That's awesome. So I know it's kind of a cheesy question, but I do like to ask it. I find myself sometimes in airports or restaurants or whatever, and I strike up conversations uh, with people who look like they've been in love forever. Uh, I love to ask the question, what's the secret to having a long, happy marriage? Uh, don't give up at the first signs of trouble or the fourth sign of trouble, or the 40th sign of trouble. 
uh, hang in there. I mean, I, I'm 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 not saying that uh, my my marriage has been all roses and bonbons for 45 years because it hasn't. There's been a real struggle uh, and real challenges along the way, but you just you dig in, and I think when you dig in and push through those really tough times, you uh, you come out on the other end stronger and with a greater appreciation for where you've been as a couple. I agree with that. I think my wife and I just came through, I guess I call them seasons, um, where we have like hard seasons and then seasons where it just seems like all the hard things disappear and it's just fun and we're we're clicking on all cylinders and uh, we're kind of in that good season. And I feel like uh, when we came out of the bad, I knew her better. I had more appreciation for her. So I totally agree with what you just said. I think that's awesome. You know, part of the thing where that uh, connects with the garage door industry, <clears throat> especially if you're in business for yourself, um, this job is not often uh, an eight to five job. Uh, and it has never been so for me when I was working at Rainer back in the 80s and 90s and for the last 20 years as a magazine editor, uh, I, I'm working all hours of the day and night. Uh, and uh, that can put stress on on the spouse who has certain expectations, you might say. But uh, you, you, you got to do what you got to do when you're in business for yourself trying to make this thing work. Yep. I think uh, the book, I don't know if you're a big reader. I'm a huge reader. I read a book that really changed things for me, and uh, it was The Five Love Languages. Have you read that? I'm familiar with it, yes. So that really helped me understand. The premise of the book is you got uh, two love languages. Most people have two. Um, Hannah, can you pull the five love languages up? Because I know I'm going to botch some of them. But you have, like, um, words of affirmation, you know, attaboys, that type of thing. Um, a lot of men sh- like thrive on the the words of affirmation. You have the acts of service, uh, which is really popular with women, um, cleaning, doing like doing the dishes, things like that. Um, they appreciate that when you do that for them. That seems to be really popular for for women. Uh, receiving gifts uh, tends to be uh, really strong for the women's side. Quality time. My wife is quality time, and that's really hard because I'm a workaholic, so that makes it difficult. And then what was the last one? Uh, physical touch. And so those are the five um, love languages. And when you are when you recognize your spouse and which ones they are, you can concentrate on those areas. And I think it helps out a lot. That book helped me out tremendously. Yeah. So we have something in common. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Well, even more so than the the marriage thing. uh, I too went to seminary school. Oh, did you really? Yeah. I was a dropout. Uh, I don't know how many seminary dropouts, you know, but uh, I dropped out of seminary the first time. I was uh, I was going for my associates, and I was about halfway through. Actually, I was two thirds of the way in, and then dropped out, and then went back and started from scratch because I wanted to get the whole experience again. And so I completed it and got my associates in biblical theology. There you go. <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, it's work. Um... I'm now uh, in a PhD program uh, for New Testament studies, and uh, 
I've never been so challenged with academic work in my life. Yeah, I can imagine how difficult that'll be. So do you, um, when do you plan on finishing that? Well, I'm three years into the program now, about three and a half, and uh, hope to, I'm about ready to begin dissertation. Uh, I expect the whole process will be about a five-year program, and I may be done by 2021. Okay. Are you planning to do something with that, or is that just for self-improvement? No, it's uh, it's probably uh, going to get involved in publishing. There's uh, several topics I, I've been wanting to address for a long time. And I think when you can put a, a PhD after your name, you can have a little more clout than you otherwise might not have. <clears throat> so uh, I do plan to uh, put to, to use all the good writing experience I had while writing uh, for the magazine for the last 20 years. And really, I was uh, editor of... Uh, employee and the dealer newsletters for Rainer for 10 years before that. So writing has been a part of my life for a long time. And you're really good at it. I think the writing part you're good at, but like the investigative part, which we're going to get into here in just a little bit, it's not just like you can have a good, you could be a good writer, but the content isn't that great. I think your content is amazing. Well thought out and, and, for whomever doesn't read your stuff, I think they're missing out. Uh, that's how I got to know you. Uh, but before we jump into that, because I do want to dig deeper into a few of the things that you've written about, uh, the the industry has changed, I imagine, dramatically from when you got into where we're at now. I'd like to hear from you. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen, uh, good and bad, in the industry since when you got into where we're at now? Well, um, in some ways, my my familiarity with the industry goes back way beyond when I started. Uh, one thing I did when I was at Rainer, as I and even after I left Rainer, I I wrote a history of the company, and th- that company goes back to 1944, and really the roots go back even into the 1920s. And so there was a a certain garage door industry in the 20s I was familiar with, in the 30s, and the 40s, and the 50s, and the 60s. And it's been an evolving thing throughout all that time. But the biggest uh, change, it seems, in the last 20 years is the uh, the advent of uh, Bad Bob. And the, uh, the garage door, the residential garage door repair scam that is now probably in all 50 states. It's, it's everywhere. And uh, it has changed uh, the way the industry sees itself. There are, there are guys coming into the, who have come into the business in the last 20 years who don't know any other way of doing business other than to just simply work to rip people off. That's, they think that's normal. They think that's what this business is. But it has never been the way this business operates for a very, very long time. But unfortunately, it's becoming standard operation procedure in so many different parts of the country. So on that topic, because I was about to ask you about that, can you define a bad Bob for me, for our listeners who don't know? Yeah, I um, bad Bob, the bad Bob business model pretty much works like this. It, it starts with a heavy uh, emphasis on advertising. <clears throat> Back in the late 90s and early 2000s, 
that focused on yellow page advertising. Uh, Bad Bobs at that time would buy out uh, full page yellow page ads, or sometimes a double truck, sometimes triple truck, and would advertise themselves under different names uh, and have all kinds of phone numbers all going to the, essentially to the same place. But it was, it, but that heavy investment in uh, advertising forced the business to charge more for uh, for their services because that cost an arm and a leg to be able to advertise full page ads in the yellow pages or now to do what people are doing with Google ads and, and bidding uh, on ads and paying 50, 60, 70, $80 per lead to, to Google. This is crazy. And once you pay that much money to get a lead, you have, you're forced to, uh, to charge them an arm and a leg for the services and to find unnecessary things that need to be that, that are repaired subsequently. So, so the, the business model is built on advertising. And then uh, once it gets down to actually doing work, there's two aspects of it that make a bad Bob. One is uh, performing unnecessary repairs. And the second aspect is grossly overcharging for the, the repairs that you do. And you've written about these in magazines because I've read them. Uh, they're great articles. Uh, we have some here locally. I've spoken to people all over the country. And there seems to be both national and local bad bobs, right? It doesn't just apply to like – I mean, they come in all forms, right? They, that's true. It started off as some national companies that really – this. I've actually traced the, the development of this started in, in South Florida, uh, and then quickly spread. Uh, they, 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 they quickly saw the, uh, the potential to make a, a ton of bucks doing this system. And so they, there was, a uh, a bunch of dealers got together, uh, in the Southeast initially, and then it began to spread, uh, nationwide to Texas and Arizona, Las Vegas, California, and et cetera. And it got to be where there were two major national chains that were doing business like this back in the early 2000s. But here's what happens. When these guys uh, would be hiring some, some guys off the street to be a technician, that technician would learn only one way to do business. And often these guys do not take care of their own employees because they're not only if they're they're willing to abuse their customers, they're often also willing to abuse their own employees. And so an employee gets ticked off and all he knows now, and he's 28 years old, he's been working for six years or something as a garage door technician. All he knows is that way to do business. And so he mimics the way Bad Bob did uh, the garage door industry because that's all he knows. Right. He thinks that's legit. Uh, but uh, he starts his own thing, and uh, it, it may be just a single one-man operation in a given community, and and away it goes. Now the the, uh, the bad bobs operate only in major metropolitan areas or in the larger cities. You won't see uh, bad bob operating in a small town of fifteen thousand in a county of uh, forty thousand people. And, and the reason for that is uh, <clears throat> bad news spreads quickly. 
uh, people find out that uh, a guy is a scumbag and word spreads and he's not going to have any business. But when you can prey on a, uh, a, biz- or a, a larger city that's got a population of a million people, and let's say you tick off uh, 1,000 or 1,500 customers and rip them off terribly and make them furiously angry. And some of them sue you. Some of them don't. Some of them go to Better Business Bureau. Some of them go to Yelp. To, to for But still, you've got uh, another 900,000 people who are completely ignorant of the whole thing. You can prey on those, and it provides you a good business for the rest of your life hmm. if you can sleep at night. That's so that's crazy. how that uh, that works, and that's how it spreads. Yeah, I think that's happened here in the Atlanta market. I mean, I think – you probably have those bad bobs who are national and then it's just duplicated. I think it's only, you know, it's only going to get worse. Uh, I don't know. Is there, is there a solution to this? I mean, I know you're educating the market, but let's say we identify, I I think I read that you guys have now like a hotline or something where people can call if we identify a bad Bob to kind of report them and you guys investigate it. Do I understand that? Right. That's right. That's right. It, it's not so much a hotline. It's a it's more of like a hot email. Okay. Uh, like it's called garage door scam at uh, gmail.com. Uh, if you can report what you've got going and then we'll investigate it. And if uh, we find that there's evidence of bad Bob activity in a community, uh, uh, we will send a press release to the media in that community warning uh, residents that, uh, there's a scammer activity uh, and it's a buyer beware situation. So, yeah. And by the way, Atlanta was one of the first cities outside of South Florida where bad Bob centered. Atlanta has been a really tough market for, for this kind of activity. Uh, it's been going on a long time there. Yeah. And, and I see it. So I've gone behind people before who have paid astronomically more I mean, we're not the cheap guys, right? Like, uh, so I, I, I'm probably on the higher side of the reasonable range, but when when someone does a spring change for fifteen hundred dollars on a sixteen by seven Pandor, uh, and they put the wrong springs on, <laughs> I have no respect for that person at all. Like, I just lose it. Um, and I've gone behind that where the springs and the damage the door about a year later. And um, and we ended up, you know, charging the customer to change the springs out, but and and swapping the door out. But that's a that's a situation that uh, is no good for anybody involved. And I mean, I don't really know. There's really not a good way to educate consumers because there's so many of them, and the cost of doing that would be so much. So I guess the best way to attack it is really the way you guys have already set it up, right? Well, I don't know what's the best way, but we're, we're, we've been coming up with a variety of, of angles. And when I say we, I'm talking about uh, the International Door Association uh, together with the Door and Access Systems Manufacturers Association. IDA and DASMA both joined together to form a task force on industry reputation. This was about three or four years ago. Uh, that, that was the formation of that task force was prompted by uh, a cover story that, that I published back then, uh, which exposed one particular uh, nationwide company, and I called them the worst garage door company in the nation. Um, 
and, and but I had evidence. And if you read that story, it's eight thousand words. The, the amount of evidence I was able to pile up exposing what these guys were doing, uh, nobody nobody questioned. Right. And nobody ever it was said overwhelming. That, yeah, it, it was overwhelming. Nobody said there was a single word in that article that was incorrect. Uh, insiders of that company uh, called me, and they still contact me to this day uh, to tell me. Uh, everything you wrote is the gospel truth. Yep, that's the way we do business there. Uh, it, it's disgusting, and I'd like to get out, but that's the way it is. So, so anyway, the, the task force was then developed by IDA and DASMA, and they've developed a number of things that are that are attacking the problem. And one of the things we did, one of the first things we did was we produced several consumer alert videos, and those are posted online now, and any dealer. Uh, such as you or anybody can then uh, use these videos, post them on your own website. You can post them on social media, on your Facebook page or, or wherever you want. And you can continue to post them one a week for the next month or so. And just and then continue to post them just to keep uh, uh, people in your area aware of uh, scammer activity and how these things work and how innocent citizens can avoid getting ripped off by these guys. That's awesome. The amount of time and effort that's gone into this just seems to be like substantial. It is. Uh, But it, you know, and I probably shouldn't say this, but it took a long time to get the industry to, uh, to act. Uh, And it wasn't until I published that big story on the worst garage door company in America that, uh, uh, both IDA and DASMA decided to do something. Uh, it was, and it was frankly gratifying to see uh, the the leadership of both IDA and DASMA, as well as uh, the CEOs of major uh, manufacturers in the industry uh, and leading door dealers in the industry, all saying, "You know, we got to do something about this, guys." Because what's happening? The bottom line is, you know, honest dealers look like scumbags right. because of what these guys are doing. Yeah. Uh, everybody, the, the whole industry looks like uh, real sleazeballs. There was a new story uh, coming out of St. Louis this week. Check it last week, end of last week, uh, just less than five days ago where there was one uh, garage door company called Maven garage door repair that had uh, uh, used a phony, uh, address, use somebody's house really as their address for their business. And uh, the people who, who owned that house were upset that uh, upset customers would come to that house and complain. I know it's not funny. I don't mean to laugh. It is. It's just, yeah. it's kind of funny, but, this, but it's, it's not right. I get it. Yeah. But then this, this gets in the, in the ro- uh, local television station, did a big story on it. And, all garage door dealers look like uh, scuzzballs because of this. Uh, who would do such a thing? I mean, it's it's just ludicrous. But it's all in the name of uh, getting more phone calls and suckering more people into uh, to buying their business and to get your technician in their garage before anybody else does. Right. And I think the the way Google has set things up organically, I mean – they're almost making it to where if you want to market outside of like a 20 or 30 mile radius, I mean, you can set up a, a, a separate location and 
a lot of guys in this area do it all the time. Like, I mean, there's guys here's expanding. They they got five or six locations, you know, within a thirty or forty mile radius. There, there's only really one true location, but there's like four addresses that somehow they've been able to acquire and market um, as another location. So they have a stronger presence in that area because Google finds them as being based there. And so they they rank better in that area. Another issue that yeah. we're seeing is like when you do a search for like garage door repair uh, here, let's just say locally in my town, Buford, Georgia, um, or Swanee, Georgia, any, anything around here, you, you're going to see companies where the domain name is garage door repair, garage door repair, Buford.com garage door repair, Swanee.com. And they're ranking really well, which is disappointing in my eyes. They're tricking the algorithm. And I've got people at Google that I've talked to about this and they're like, we know, like, we know it's going on, but, uh, you know, until they like officially get caught, you know, they're going to stay there basically. Um, and so I don't know that Google's really doing a whole lot, especially in the, like the local pack. Um, I feel like they used to be really strong with their like spam filter back in the day. And it's just gotten worse. And I don't feel like it's urgent for them to figure that out, but not to like sit on that too long, but I do want to bring something up. Uh, you guys were able to work with Google, if I'm not mistaken. And did I hear it right? That you guys actually got Google to refuse the revenue of one of their probably biggest customers in home services, one of these bad bobs and shut their ads down. Hey guys, have you heard of a company named Somer? Somer builds some of the best openers on the market, which are all produced in Germany. They've busted on the scene here recently and for good reason. They offer tons of flexibility. I'll give you a few reasons why this diehard LiftMaster fan, me, started buying Somer operators recently. The Somer team here in the U.S. provides excellent customer service and had all the answers to my questions. Roman and Andy, the U.S. reps, they're easy to deal with. The rail for this operator is in the box. Talk about space saving. Somer can solve so many problems that others can't. My experience has been amazing, and I challenge you to try Somer out yourself. Somer has some amazing deals for our listeners. To learn more about these promotions, call Somer at 704-424-5787. Use coupon code TORSIONTALK. You can also visit them online at somer-usa.com. Google, if I'm not mistaken, and did I hear it right that you guys actually got Google to refuse the revenue of one of their probably biggest customers in home services, one of these bad bobs, and shut their ads down? Uh, that's that's uh, that's true. I wasn't the sole person involved, but uh, our our the article that we produced on the, the worst garage door company in America did get Google's attention, and it was actually uh, uh, the. Um, the real instigator that helped to make that happen was the Dallas Morning News investigative reporter. Uh, they they exposed this same company that we had exposed, and they had found a list of 500 different domains that this company was using. I'll, I'll name the company. It's, it's Garage Door Services, uh, and uh, they go by na uh, Neighborhood Garage Door Service now. Uh, 
and they they had a zillion a zillion they had five hundred actually they had more than a thousand different domain names they would use with different business names that they were using to sucker people into uh, coming getting business from them. Uh, but Google found out about that through the uh, Dallas Morning News and shut them down within 24 hours and refused to accept any more advertising from them. And according to my estimate, uh, I have some inside information there. I have reason to believe that uh, that company was spending in excess of $10 million a year with Google Wow! to manipulate Google uh, throughout the country. And Google, to their credit, said, you know, we like $10 million, but we don't like it that much. We're shutting you down. We're not going to take any more money from you and not going to let you advertise anymore. That's huge. And, it's fr- and from that, then they began the, the Google verification process, uh, the advanced verification process, the Google guarantee process. And uh, there have been several bad bobs that have been shut down from advertising on Google nationwide since that happened. And the interesting thing to me is that there have been lawsuits, there have been uh, a major exposure of these bad Bob activities by NBC nationally, ABC, CBS, uh, local television stations exposing, and that had zero effect on these, these bad Bobs. But the one thing that actually made a difference in shutting these guys down was Google. When Google says, we will not accept your advertising anymore, that shut them down. Uh, And they're scrambling like crazy, coming up with all kinds of new business names to get around Google's system, but Google's watching them. It's kind of like a -a whack-a-mole process where the bad Bob's ugly head starts popping up with different names now, and Google's got to start doing its own research to figure out what's going on and who these people are and are they really bad? Because they don't want to reject advertising from somebody who's not genuinely a bad guy. Right. And so they have specific um, rules and regulations you got to follow now for the entire garage door industry, by the way, nationwide. This yeah, is, we this had to started, go through it. There you go. I mean, it wasn't easy either. I mean, like uh, they wanted us to like they had me on the phone. I think we did like a FaceTime or something. Um, yeah. video. I had to show them the the sign on the front of the building, a vehicle that was wrapped with our brand on it, and uh, they wanted me to like show them a tour of the office, show them where my office was. I mean, like it was like pretty. It, it felt a little bit intrusive for uh, running ads on AdWords, but uh, at the same time, I get what they're doing and why why they're doing it. If you think about it, it's really absolutely amazing that Google is willing to go to that extent. But they realize how many bad guys are taking advantage of the system. And and and, and speaking of which, the, the next issue of the Door and Access Systems magazine is going to have another big story. It might be the cover story that deals with uh, Google Maps and how bad bobs have been manipulating Google Maps. Uh, throughout the country, not just in the garage door industry, but in a variety of industries, right. and what uh, Google is now doing to help uh, fight that problem. It's uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool what's going on. But what's what's also discouraging is that there's still hundreds of bad bobs are getting through the Google system and still getting advertising on there and ripping people off every day. 
Now, just to take a quick, while we were talking, you mentioned about uh, searching for garage door repair in your area. Mm-hmm. I entered a search for Atlanta garage door repair. And the, the number one company that popped up with a Google ad is searsgaragedoors.com. Now, I've done a study and a story on Sears this couple, two or three years ago. And the thing that was disappointing to me is that Sears has learned the business from bad Bob. And I had evidence of invoices in my hand of other different Sears operations from around the country showing what they're actually charging people for, for very simple things. Uh, and, uh, now, I'm not saying that every Sears garage door is guilty of this stuff, but if if you're a homeowner, uh, just because you see the Sears names, don't just immediately trust that they're going to treat you right. Um, uh, that, that, that was a, a real wake-up call as to how widely spread the Bad Bob problem is. It has spread so much so that when Sears began their effort to have these nationwide chain of garage door repair operations – they learned the business from the wrong people, not the right people. Wow. That seems Sears is such a trusted brand. So I, I, I like, I'm a little bit shocked that that's even a thing. It's amazing. I interviewed the, uh, the president of Sears garage doors and I had a, uh, a conference call with their legal counsel out of their corporate office in Chicago uh, on this whole issue. They knew that this was a big deal. And I, I encourage anybody to look up our, our article on Sears. Uh, go to Dasma.com and, and just look for it. You'll find it. And you can read it there. See what they had to say in defense of uh, what they were doing. Now, this attention, like you doing what you're doing, IDA, Dasma, everybody, like this is this is actually cost you. I mean, it's my understanding you've even been sued over this personally. Well, that's true. It, it cost me personally money out of thousands of dollars out of my own pocket. That's right. Uh, uh, the In the last um, December, the final issue that I published as editor, uh, its cover story was Precision Door of Phoenix Exposed. And I'd been watching this particular company, Precision Door of Phoenix, for six years. No, no more than that. Maybe 10 years. I've been familiar with what was going on down there. And it just took me a long time to put everything together to finally present the evidence and expose what was going on. And the the owner of that company uh, sued me before our article hit the streets, but it was too late already. And the the charges they had against me were, were ludicrous and ridiculous and couldn't stand up in, in any court of law. And he eventually uh, withdrew the lawsuit and even paid half of my legal expenses. Wow. So when I like when I think about bad bobs and we're talking about these big brands, right, um, you know, for me here locally, I haven't had, I've gone up against Sears a few times on like door quotes and stuff, and they seem to be reasonable, but maybe a little bit more expensive than me. And I had mentioned, I'm, 
I'm kind of on the higher side with doors and, and repairs, but not, not without, uh, not being out of reason. And then, uh, but, but they seem to be legit in my market. I don't know if they're all kind of run separately. I think I understand they're a franchise, right? So each one's kind yeah, of run yeah. differently. Um, right. So- they are franchises and there's independent, uh, uh, authority they can do a lot of things locally. Okay. And then precision here, um, in Atlanta, I actually, I don't know him. I know of him, the owner over here, or the franchisee, uh, I, I'm actually impressed by his operation and, and I've heard great things about them and have not really, and I've got my ear to the ground here because I'm friends with so many guys in the garage door business. Uh, I'm under the impression that these guys here in Atlanta actually run their operation pretty well. So I assume that's kind of the same thing, right? Like we can't just assume that all precisions are bad, uh, but you do have some rogue, I guess, franchisors or franchisees who decide to just go off and do their own thing and change the practice. Or is this being taught from a high level? No, that's right. And uh, it, a real important lesson here is that uh, whereas it's so easy just to say all precisions are bad or all sears are bad, you can't do that. You, everyone has to be uh, analyzed on its own merits. Uh, and to Precision Doors credit, uh, as soon as they got word that I had exposed what Phoenix was doing, they, they had taken action within 24 hours to begin uh, termination procedures against that uh, franchise owner in the Phoenix market. And to me, that uh, shows the commitment that they're not going to put up with that with their brand because, I mean, that gets out nationally. I mean, that's going to hurt their brand nationally, right? So, I mean, they're motivated for that reason. But, I mean, to act that quickly, I mean, you kind of have to be bought in on the fact that you want to do it right. Yep. In this case, the the owner of the precision operation there had been in the system since 2002. Uh, He'd been on notice many times from the corporate office, uh, but it was difficult to get rid of the guy. Uh, But this was the last straw. And now I think as of uh, uh, like two days ago, uh, August 18th was officially his last day as a precision door franchise in Phoenix and Tucson. That guy also owns three other Precision Door franchises in Dallas, one in Fort Worth, and one in in Maryland. And he has another six months to to uh, sell off those operations because he'll no longer be allowed to be a Precision Door dealer. Oh wow! Yeah. Well, good for Precision. I think so. I mean, it looks like you have these big companies. It sounds like Google's bought in on making things better, precision. And, you know, hopefully the Sears thing is just isolated to, you know, one or a few locations and that Sears corporate. I I don't like Sears is bankrupt, right? Like the the store. So I guess the Sears garage door franchise, that's kind of like a separate deal, right? Yeah, they have uh, a bunch of separate deals. It's a, it's a massive parent company with uh, multi layers to their businesses. Uh, but but yeah, they they've been in in trouble financially uh, on on the Sears corporate level. But I, as I understand it, I think that the uh, the garage Sears garage door friend, or, or business is. Uh, 
may be doing okay. Okay. And I would quickly add that they may have responded to the article where I exposed what they were doing. They may have responded to that in a favorable way so that they're cleaning up their act nationwide as well. But uh, so I don't want to give anybody the impression that if it says Sears, it's bad. Right. Uh, so you got to do your homework. That's awesome. And what what are some ways for like what some tips that you can give uh, listeners, whether they're homeowners trying to, you know, understand how to shop for garage door companies? What are like two or three things that you can think of right off the bat that would throw a red flag if you were looking for a good garage door company? Uh and maybe they don't want to go look online or whatever, just two or three things that are dead giveaways. You're online, you're stopping for a repair. Here's what you're looking for that are definite red flags. I I have two things come to mind. Number one, uh, the, the best way to avoid getting scammed as a homeowner is to get uh, a second bid. Uh, Cause chances are, if you get two bad bobs bidding on your project, <laughs> then your 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 market is pretty bad. Yeah, and there are some market life and stay away from the casinos. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, even the Atlanta market, you know, that's it would be possible for somebody to get two bids and get both those bids from some bad guys. Right. Um, but it would be unlikely. So get two bids. That's the first thing. A second thing I think I, I would have people do is. Um, Go to the website of the business you're thinking about doing business with. Look at their physical address, like and then do a do a Google search of their physical address and see if there's actually a business in that location. I did this yesterday for uh, for a company in San Antonio, and lo and behold, the business was was a cricket wireless business and the bad guy had just simply appropriated an address in a central part of town just to make them look like they're centrally located in the community which is baloney they're lying it's deceptive and it's also against google's uh uh the the rules for them to participate in any ads right so yeah so you you just you can't do that but it's a very common thing for bad bobs because they they don't like to have a brick and mortar location because it costs a lot of money to be able to maintain that. So they're just uh, routing people through, through uh, cell phones and sending people out that way and giving this illusion to the community that they're deeply involved and they got a whole bunch of trucks and uh, all company uh, paid employees, which is usually not the case. They're usually uh, subcontractors. Um I'd, I'd sort of like almost like to talk about this subcontractor issue. And I know that yeah, let's talk a lot it. of business. I, I think it's well, a great topic. I, I, I actually, uh, before we jump into it, two years ago, I'm part of the Gwinnett Chamber here. They had a seminar from the Department of Labor. And I'm sitting in this seminar and they're talking about the differences between contractors and employees and the liability that employers have when they have contractors and they're kind of breaking these rules and I'm literally sweating. Like, I'm like, how much longer does this last? I need to get out of here. We've got to change things and restructure. <laughs> and so like I was starting to panic because I mean, uh, I mean, I've, I've started businesses before, but for the most part, I mean, everybody's contractor, whatever. And, and, but I don't think a lot of garage door guys really fully understand what's at stake. That's right. Uh, <clears throat> 
if, if you're going to hire um, independent contractors to be doing your technician's work, you better have your ducks in a row. The federal government has been cracking down on abuse of that system for some time, and they're looking for people who are abusing the system. And there are specific rules for uh, using these people and not calling them employees. Uh, but if you're, if you're, I'm not an expert in this. I've published several articles about it. But if you guys, if you're using these uh, subcontractors every day and they're working for you like eight to five or whatever, and you can dictate when they work and what they can't, when they can't work, um, that sure smells like an employee right. to the, the federal government. And if, uh, and if you're not paying them as employee, paying them, you know, uh, appropriate uh, benefits that go along with that and workers' compensation, et cetera, uh, federal government can crack down on it. Uh, the, the, uh, as much as I'd love to scare the pants out of people on this issue, I think the reality is that the federal government has their hands really full. It's not just the garage door industry that abuses the subcontractor system, but it's a zillion other industries. And so it's going to take a while for them to really get down there to, to, to find abuses. But I, I think just to ask the question to, uh, if I was talking to an honest door dealer, I would, I would say, listen, I would I, I ask people to reconsider whether you should be hiring uh, independent subcontractors instead of having employees. Um, that is, I think, 100% of bad bobs pay their technicians uh, as a subcontractor and paying them commission. And when you do that, you allow the technician to fatten his own wallet by performing all kinds of unnecessary repairs, and especially if you give that technician the right to change prices in the field and charge what he wants. Uh, and, and if you got a technician making 28%, or whatever the number is, uh, on a given job, he's going to be motivated to rack up a $1,000 bill, a $1,400 bill, so that he can walk away from that job with, uh, you know, $500 or something in his pocket. Wow. Is uh, that the percent that you're hearing from some of these, like, big companies, the bad bobs? 28%, yes. Wow. Uh, but uh, the the Phoenix situation that I referred to, uh, he had a, a more uh, uh, company-friendly uh, system. I think they it was like 15% and then 18%. Uh, but uh, the I, I'm, I've published that uh, uh, Garage Door Services, based in Carrollton, Texas, uh, also known as Neighborhood Garage Door Service, uh, they have uh, paid their people upwards toward the 20, 25 and 30% uh, commissions. And I've talked to their people who have been paid that uh, all over the country. They they have they've had guys who were being making more than two hundred thousand dollars a year as a garage door technician. Ah, so that's why they sell their soul. I mean, like I'm sitting here <laughs> honestly trying to figure out like if these guys. I mean, it, it, earlier in the conversation, you said you spoke to a few and they're trying to find their way out. Uh, but genuinely, like if you really want it out, I mean, I, I kind of associate this, uh, unfortunately, to the car business. 
I mean, it feels very similar to, you know, back in the 80s, guys, there was no regulation on how much you could mark up, I think, the interest rate when you were selling a loan to someone to purchase a car. And so if the buy rate was, you know, seven and a half, eight percent, I mean, you could charge somebody 15 percent. And then, you know, there's a big chunk there of profit for the both the dealership and the finance manager, not to mention, you know, the profit on the front end of the deal. And so like so many people were getting taken advantage of is that that car dealers eventually started getting this really bad rep and it made it difficult for the good dealers. And when someone would walk on the lot, you know, you have, you have genuinely good car guys and they get treated like trash because uh, people are scared they're afraid. They don't know if you're good or bad or what your intentions are, but they know they want to buy the car for as cheap as possible. You want to sell the car for as much as possible. And that combination just builds anxiety, I think, for people. And then I'm seeing that same trend right now, like with with garage doors. I think that's kind of where we're trending. And if we don't put like, uh, you know, we don't end it or find a good way to, to slow it down dramatically, I think we're going to end up having that that stigma as bad or worse than the the uh, the automotive dealership industry. I agree. And uh, the in the last issue of our magazine, I published an article uh, entitled "How We Should Handle Residential Repair Jobs: uh, How to Learn from the the Automotive Repair Industry." Uh, about uh, 12, 15 years ago. I became acquainted with the fact that the automotive industry, the automotive repair industry, was facing this exact same problem back in the 80s and 90s, where you would have automotive mechanics who were doing the same things that uh, garage door mechanics are doing now. They were making unnecessary repairs, and they were charging an arm and a leg for parts because, you know, the average person doesn't know what a you know, an air filter costs or, or some of the more technical parts in, in, in under the hood. But the same thing true with the garage door hinges and, and rollers and, and such. Uh, and you get the, the situation is ripe for abuse when you get put your car or your garage door into the hands of somebody who's there uh, making a commission, especially off of off the whole thing. But the, the, the automotive repair industry under the uh, the trade association known as the Automotive Maintenance and Repair Association came up with several steps to a code of ethics to try to uh, clean up the problem in their industry. And uh, the article I published in our, in our summer issue this year uh, goes into detail on what they did and how we can uh, take advantage of uh, learning from the automotive industry, which is much bigger than ours. And this is a hot topic on. I don't know if you're aware, but there's a lot of activity on Facebook uh, through groups of just garage door guys, you know, talking and chatting about the industry and what's going on. And uh, there's a lot of conversations about pricing. You know, I think that uh, one thing that I, I tend to bring up a lot is we have a lot of technicians and installers who aren't necessarily the strongest business people who go into the industry thinking, oh, wow, I can go start my own business and make as much or more than I'm making now and not have a boss and do my own thing. And so they come in and, and to win business, they undercut everybody. 
And so uh, the the businesses that are established and have overhead and employees and all of that, which is one of the reasons why I think a lot of people go to subcontractors is because you don't have all the the education and the uh, the understanding of what it means to have employees, both in cost and legal uh, ramifications. So you have all these guys coming into the industry as their own business, one or two man show. Uh, and, and they're happy. They're they're making a couple thousand dollars, three, four, five thousand dollars a month doing their own thing. And uh, and w- what a lot of these guys aren't thinking of, like what happens when you you know blow a shoulder or a knee, you know, and 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 you're in this position. Like I, I just I don't understand why people underprice, but I also don't understand why we feel the need to overprice. And so. Uh, like one of my questions I had for you, and I'll probably just go ahead and ask you this since we're on the topic, like how, what's a good way for a garage door dealer to come up with their pricing where they're not too low and they're not too high to the point where they're not ripping people off, but they're also making a healthy margin. Yeah. I think that the, uh, uh, this is a legitimate issue, and we've published on this topic uh, several times over the last uh, 15, 20 years. Uh, and some, in some ways, learning from the automotive industry is a legitimate thing here as well. I think you can, uh, uh, if you want to make sure that your prices are appropriate, make sure that they are uh, within range of other uh, businesses in your area that are charging for the same thing. Like, if, it's not hard to find out what your competitor is charging for a spring change, uh, what a competitor is charging for uh, rollers, and uh, make sure that you're within uh, the market average there. Uh, uh, one rule of thumb that I published several years ago is that the, you ought to be within uh, you know, 75% to 125% of uh the typical prices in your area. And I think that's just good business for whether you're selling hamburgers or air conditioners or, or garage doors. Right. Uh, you just want to be um, competitive. I that's see. one way to do that. Yeah. The other thing that, that, that I put in this, in this new article that's in our summer issue about the autom- learning from the automotive industry is um, I, one thing door dealers need to be aware of is if your repair bill begins to approach the cost of a replacement garage door, yes, then you've got you have an a moral obligation to tell the customer. Uh, if, let's, let's you know, for example, you know, if 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 you got a, a garage door repair that's going to cost a thousand dollars. And a new door could cost eight hundred, depending on you know what the door is you're talking right. about. Uh, uh, don't you have an, an obligation to tell that to the customer? I believe ethically, uh, that's absolutely the way you have to do it. If you want to go home and sleep at night and feel comfortable with yourself, then uh, I mean, here we like I'm I'm. This is a no bend rule for us. Like my guys have to offer new door quotes if we're anywhere close to the range on repairs. And I encourage them to do new door quotes anyway, even if like if the door's 15 years or older and we're there for a repair, just show them the difference. Cause we can't assume that every customer wants to spend three, $400 to repair the door 
and and know that there's parts that are going to break down again, you know, in the next five, 10 years. I mean, some people buy on convenience and, and, and we can't make that judgment for them. So I like having, you know, uh, like a good, better, best option where we're like, hey, this is what you called us out for. This is good. This is a good option. Uh, this is uh, the better option. This is taking care of a few other things that, that could potentially break down in the near future. And then here's the best option uh, if you wanted to just buy a whole new door. And we don't push them in any direction whatsoever. We just say, hey, here's what you're looking at. Which one do you want? And that just works really well for us and our customers love it. And there's lots of feedback on our reviews from people who really enjoyed that process. Now, I agree with that uh, uh, completely. And, however, there are some businesses out there that offer the good, better, best approach. But the good uh, repair bill is still $1,400 when it should be uh, $125. Right. You follow me? Yeah. Even still, it's a terrible ripoff and an embarrassment to the industry. Right. Uh, but but generally, that's, that's, that's a rare case. Now, what you're seeing also uh, applies to what's happening in the automotive repair industry. They also, when they put their best minds to this problem in their industry, they said, yes, uh, we need to offer a good, better, best. But they put specific definitions on what good means, what better means, and what best means. And for them, good meant to restore the system from failure. For example, in a garage door situation, if a door has failed and it cannot open, this is you, you present to the customer, this is what it will take just to get your door operating again and That's nothing great. more. That's great. I love that. Yeah, and then the second thing, though better, is to prevent an impending breakdown. For example, if if you go in, uh, somebody's got a, a spring that has broken, uh, but they've got uh, maybe another door that had the same spring put on at the same time. Um, you can tell them at, to get your system back operating. You need to have a new spring. That's 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 what's just what it's going to take. But you to prevent an impending breakdown, it's likely that your other spring is also going to break soon because it's near the end of its expected lifespan. And so then you propose to the customer to to uh, to spend a little more to change out the second spring as well. And that's the the better approach to prevent an impending breakdown. And then the third level, the best approach in the garage in the automotive industry was to improve system performance. This is above and beyond, you know, restoring a door to working order, above and beyond preventing an impending breakdown. It's to, uh, like, propose to a customer that uh, all new rollers can make your door a lot quieter and run smoother. But it's your option. It'll cost you blank to do that. So it's, uh, there's three different levels you see there. And I, I, I think that I that it. makes a ton of sense. I'll actually, I'm going to take what you just said right there. And when we have our next training, I'm actually going to implement that here. Exactly like that. I, I think that's I, awesome. The, I encourage you to, to take a look at the article we published in the summer issue. And again, it's called uh, how we should handle residential repair jobs. Uh, in the summer issue of the door and access systems magazine. Uh, I'm not trying to promote the magazine. I don't get any, no, you're benefit fine. out of people getting it, but uh, I'm a I, fan of I, it anyway. 
I really uh, went to great pains to draft every word of that thing appropriately so as to avoid a lawsuit, for one thing, because it's delicate. This is delicate area where you're talking about recommending to people how to how to improve their systems. Uh, and, but I think uh, this one is, is a really good article that's worth looking at. So I've tried explaining it to my guys, but I think the way that you did it so much better than the way I did it. So I'm going to take that and use that. I appreciate that. Um, there's two things I want to, um, I want to just bring up and get your opinions on. And then I've got like what I call quick hitters, just some interesting, uh, questions that I've got for you. And then we'll wrap this thing up. So I read, uh, the first ones on, uh, non-competes. So I read when you were talking to, uh, one of the bad bobs, he had multiple lawsuits where he had sued in, uh, employees or contractors who had worked for him uh, that went elsewhere. And I think there's this misconception of non-competes or like there's a lot of guys in the industry that are really afraid of them, but they're, they seem to be like where I came from prior to getting into the garage door industry was software. And um, for us in software, it was pretty simple. If you were in sales, you just couldn't work in the same state. So your territory had to be a different territory than what you currently had for that period of time in most cases. But a lot of non-competes don't stick. So if you're an employee or uh, really you can't hold a subcontractor to a non-compete, right? Uh, I think that's correct. Yeah. Uh I mean, we can look that up. Hannah, you want to do some research yeah. and see if there's – can you make a subcontractor sign a non-compete? I mean, they're technically not an employee and not employed by you. So I'd imagine if they're a, a subcontractor, they couldn't be held to a a non-compete. But anyway, I mean – Yeah, it's worth looking like, into. Yeah. So it seemed like you had a lot of int- information on it. Go ahead. Generally speaking – Okay, so Hannah says that uh, if it's a if it's a non compete with a subcontractor, it can't be enforced, right? That's what it says. Is that that make that makes sense? And most garage door companies are running on subcontractors. I think in uh, you say most. I think in uh, in larger. Population areas like Atlanta, like Dallas, like, uh, you know, Orlando, et cetera. Uh, yes, that's true. But you get outside those uh, large city areas, I think you're going to see the, the vast majority are full-time employees and not subcontractors. Uh, I did a survey once, a national survey of the industry, asking the question, of uh, uh, what percentage door dealers have full-time employees and what percentage have subcontractors and what percentage use both. And uh, in that study, the if memory serves, uh, the majority, I think it was more than 60%, had full-time employees and only full-time employees. I think it was maybe even closer to 80%. Um, Wow, that's the standard. Is that because the, is that because the people who were taking the poll were just? Uh, I mean, polls are like I don't know. I feel like they're all manipulated. But the the audience of who you were sending those to, right? Like, are, are those more legitimate dealers or? No, they really are. I, uh, 
there's just a, a big difference between the way business is commonly done in Atlanta versus the way it's commonly done in Peoria. You know, it's just uh, you, you, outside of those bigger cities, uh, it's just extremely common, even unheard of for them to be using subcontractors for, for technicians. In my area, I live in northern Illinois. Uh, and all the, the door dealers around me have nothing but full-time employees. Uh, it's just, it's just the way that it's been, business has been done for, for decades. That's crazy. Uh, it's, it's only in the larger markets where you'll see the opposite. So I think the last thing I'd like to bring up before I ask you these little quick questions and, um, just kind of bounce this off of you. One of the challenges when it comes to being a garage door owner is like, the accountability. So when you're small, you're growing fast and you're hiring people and you're hoping that you're hiring people that have integrity, but you can't be 1000% sure you're sending these guys out, right? And they're going into people's homes. We run background checks, do drug tests, all that stuff. So you do all the things that, that you hope that you're doing right to try to weed out the bad guys. But how do you like, what are some ways that you can like monitor those guys and make sure I know one way we've done here is we keep an eye on tickets. So uh, there's been one or two times where one of my guys uh, have overcharged somebody more than I would have liked. And I give my guys a little bit of flexibility. If the job's more difficult, um, more complicated, they can adjust. But if it's, if it's to a point where I feel like, it's on the verge of excessive. I don't think we've ever charged anybody excessive, but if it even borders or comes close to, I just refund the difference back to the customer. And we keep an eye on that here. What are some other ways that you could, I mean, let's talk about a lot of companies are growing right now really fast. Like how do you continue that growth, but also the accountability? And this is a question like, uh, I see Tommy Mello out in Arizona uh, expanding at a rapid pace. And one of my conversations with him was like, you know, I think your biggest challenge is going to be accountability. Like how do you monitor all those people? And, uh, and he's got a really, he uses the same system we use, but apparently he's locked his pricing. So the guys can adjust the pricing in the field, but then like guys are smart, right? They'll always find a way to figure things out. And so like, how do you know they're not doing side jobs with your parts or, you know, uh, you know, selling things on the side that there's just so much that, that could happen because you're not there and you're trusting all these guys with your vehicles going into people's homes. How do you monitor that? How do you, how do you keep that accountability when you're growing so fast? Yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, I had an article recently, maybe it's in the upcoming issue of the magazine, where, where I, I addressed that specific question. And uh, the it, it, I don't know, of outside of a good screening process when you're hiring guys, you really need to do that because these guys are your company to their to their uh, customers. Right. They are the face of your company to the world at large. And if you've hired a, a, a real loser, then you are a real loser in, in reality in your marketplace. Right. So it's, it's really important to do the screening, but then <clears throat> to watch out for this, uh, this overcharging business, I think that uh, companies need to develop a zero tolerance 
uh, of any employee who is caught overcharging somebody or replacing items that don't need to be replaced. Uh, and just simply let <clears throat> let employees know, listen, guys, if you do, do this once, you will be fired. There is no second chance. We don't allow it. You are destroying our reputation when you're out there. You may think you got away with it, but that customer is going to be really ticked off. They're going to go on Yelp. They're going to go to the Better Business Bureau. They may even go to to uh, to Google. They may go to wherever they're going to go. But it's going to end. Uh, go to the local TV station, and and then we're going to look like a real scuzzball business because of what you just did. Right. So we we have a zero tolerance policy of you overcharging or replacing unnecessary items, and. Uh, uh, it, it only happens once, guys. So don't let it happen, because I will fire you. That's good. I think it has to be that. Yeah, you, you want to. You got to draw yeah, the line. You got to draw the line. If you if you let them get away with it once, it's just gonna. Other guys are gonna do it, and they're gonna think they can get away with it without you even finding out. But you got to be. I think that the process has got to be uh, what you said. What you're doing, you got to scan those invoices, and it only takes. I mean, if you're sharp. You can scan an invoice in five seconds. Yeah, uh, and the, you're just going to have a handful of those a day. In 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 five minutes, you can scan all your invoices in a one given day, and you know what to look for. You can see it, and uh, then then ask them about it. Uh, the, the, I think it's that one little process at the end of the day of scanning invoices. It's going to be your best opportunity to, uh, to to solve the problem. Right. All right, so I got some quick hitters. I'm going to call them quick hitters. These are two, like two really short, quick answers that I just want to know from you that I think will be interesting. Uh, you, They did an article, I think when you retired from the magazine, of your top 10 articles that you had done, uh, which by far are all excellent. Which one is your favorite? I immediately go to the uh, the worst garage door company in the nation. That took a massive amount of work, massive. You, you you just have no idea. But the, and I and I feared getting sued. Uh, you know, if you call somebody on the cover of your magazine the worst grocery company in America, you know, it's just asking for a lawsuit. Right. But we had our we had our ducks in a row, and uh, the suit never happened. And uh, good things happened because of that. Uh, Google got a hold of that article, and uh, a whole bunch of other people. There were there were the, the legal cases out in California where technicians were charged and and hauled in front of the court uh, for abusing customers with pricing. Uh, that article was cited five times in that court case. Uh, so that that's the I think that article I point to more than anything else. That's awesome. So the next one is, uh, what kind of door and opener do you have on your house? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, it, uh, I should just, uh, that gets to be a dangerous thing, but I'll go ahead and answer. <laughs> uh, I, I remind you now, I uh, live in the community where Rainer is found. Mm hmm. And uh, my dad worked for Rainer for 42 years. I worked there for 10 years. I, my older brother worked there for 30 years. My younger brother worked there for 25 years. Uh, Rainer makes uh, great, solid products. Uh, and uh, when, when I, however, came to changing out my garage door a number of years ago, I went with uh, an Amar Classica. 
nice. uh, because of the, uh, the, the, it was a new style. It was a whole new look and AMR had a corner on that market. And, uh, uh, that's what I've got on there. And I've got, uh, I've got a LiftMaster operator on one of them and a Chinese company uh, leaned on me some time ago and asked me to be a field test for a, a Chinese operator. And I've got that on my other uh, door and have not, have had nothing but problems with it. Ah, that could be a whole so, other show. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> well, listen, Tom, you are amazing. And I love you for everything that you've done for this industry. Uh, I want to thank you. And uh, you're a pioneer by no doubt. Like I don't think anybody can can even say that you're not a pioneer in what you've done single-handedly in both with groups, IDA and DASMA and your magazine. Like just just the sheer guts that you had to publish some of these articles. I know you knew you were getting into it when you did it, but you did it anyway and it paid off. And um, I just want to thank you for that because you're making the industry better. I hope with this podcast – that it's educational and entertaining. And I hope to just put a really small dent uh, in this industry with this and hope that it helps out. And, um, and I just really appreciate everything that you've done. Well, I appreciate it, Ryan. And it's good to talk to you again and uh, feel free to call anytime. Will do. Take care, bud. See ya. Bye. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'm Hannah with Such and Such Media. Our team specializes in garage door marketing, so make sure to visit us at garagedoormarketing.co. Thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast. If you guys enjoyed it, make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on your podcast platform of choice.